The U.S. mainstream, corporate-owned, capitalist-owned media is a major factor in building consensus in the United States or attempting to build consensus and preparing the public for major power conflict with Russia and China. Today, we're going to talk about the role of the media. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Walter Smolarek. Walter has been doing research on the capitalist-owned mainstream media and its role in war preparations. We're going to talk about this. Here we are 20 years after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, coming up on March 19th, and there will be a major protest in Washington, D.C. on March 18th, Saturday, March 18th and in other cities marking that anniversary. But the U.S. war effort against Iraq, based on lies, based on deceiving the public, a war that took the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, it could not have happened the way it did happen without the role of the corporate-owned media. And some of the main players in the media, the same ones who brought us the Iraq war, are helping to bring World War III, if they can. Walter Smolarek is our guest. Walter, welcome. Very glad to be here. Walter, let's get started. I mean, you've seen some of the media. You and I have been talking in the last couple of days. There's a sense of alarm in the media right now. And this is what the American people in particular are reading, a sense of alarm about Ukraine. Not that the war in Ukraine is about to end, but the sense is the sense of alarm is that it might end. Anyway, let's get started with this. These are really important mainstream media articles and a signal of what's coming. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the U.S. war machine would absolutely not be able to get away with the crimes, the horrific crimes, war crimes, crimes of a historic nature, if it were not for this totally compliant media that at every turn was preparing public opinion, generating public opinion, public support for the aims of the warmongers. So let me just start off by reading a headline from a recent Wall Street Journal article. It's titled, The Perils of Premature Negotiation Over Ukraine, subhead, peace talks might be worthwhile if Putin's war aims were just territorial, but his larger ambition is to push back US and NATO influence in Eastern Europe. And this article goes on to argue, in this terrible war, a rushed settlement that fails would be worse than no settlement. And of course, success or failure as the Wall Street Journal is meaning it, intending to use that formulation, means does the United States succeed or fail to impose its hegemony on the region? What's your reaction to this type of headline, this article in particular, and this type of narrative that's coming from all sorts of different outlets? Well, I want the audience to really understand not only the title, but the subtitle. So read the title and the subtitle one more time. And I want to talk about the subtitle in particular. Yeah, absolutely. So it's called The Perils of Premature Negotiation Over Ukraine. 
And it says peace talks might be worthwhile if Putin's war aims were just territorial, but his larger ambition is to push back U.S. and NATO influence in Eastern Europe. So just get those words. Sometimes it's hard to really navigate through the very deft, highly nuanced and carefully constructed language in the capitalist owned media. But if Putin's aims were only territorial, meaning taking parts of or annexing parts of Ukraine, fine, that could be a peace deal, according to the subtitle of this major article, Warning Against Negotiations. But if Putin's real intention is to push back U.S. and NATO influence in Eastern and Central Europe, that means that the United States should not engage in negotiations. Let's just parse that. Thousands of Ukrainians and Russians, but thousands of Ukrainians, and presumably this article is on the side of the Ukrainian people, are dying, are being injured, are losing electricity as long as the war continues. And there could be a deal, let's say Russia annexes the Russian-speaking parts of eastern Ukraine and Crimea, which happened in 2014. But that wouldn't be enough because what Putin wants to do and what the Ukrainian people thus should be dying for is to diminish U.S. NATO influence in Eastern and Central Europe. Now, let's assume but not concede that that subtitle is correct, that what Putin really wants is to push NATO back. Let's assume that. What does that mean? It doesn't mean pushing the United States or the people of the United States into a corner. It doesn't mean threatening the security of the people living in Nebraska or Massachusetts or Georgia. It means that the United States would have less influence through the military alliance called NATO, which the United States established in 1949, to be able to take over, incorporate Eastern and Central Europe into a U.S military sphere of influence such that U.S. weapons, including the most advanced conventional and nuclear weapons, can be placed in Eastern and Central Europe right near Russia or right on Russia's border. So the idea that it would be wrong to negotiate if it meant the diminishment or diminution of NATO influence means that it would reduce the prospect of NATO's ability to threaten Russia. Why should the people of the United States oppose that? Again, assuming but not conceding that that, in fact, is Putin's goal. I mean, why should the people of the United States support sending hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine? And why should the Ukrainian people send their sons and daughters, not to mention their babies and grandparents, to death just so that U.S. and NATO influence can reign supreme in this part of the world. I mean, NATO started in 1949. It did not dominate Eastern and Central Europe at that time. Those countries were allies of the Soviet Union, Russia at that time. Why was it such a menace to world peace when the situation was such that NATO was restricted to Western Europe? I mean, the whole logic here, Walter, is that we should assume that pushing NATO back, diminishing NATO's influence is a threat to world peace, when in fact, pushing NATO back, and I would say dissolving NATO, because it's completely unnecessary, it's just a tool at this point for offensive military operations, ending NATO would in fact be the path to peace. 
So here again, the people of the United States being completely misled. These are mainstream articles and accepted as good faith. And no reporter says, wait a second, that's ridiculous. How could there be premature negotiations when the need for peace is so ever present? Right. I mean, a, a running theme of this Wall Street Journal article that we're talking about is the allegation that Putin has a master plan to create a new Europe. That's the formulation this Wall Street Journal piece uses, a new Europe. Well, how else could you possibly describe U.S. and NATO policy towards Europe since the end of the Cold War, if not to create a new Europe, so-called, that meets the needs of Washington and Wall Street? As they went about the creation of this new Europe, like you said, the expansion of the NATO military alliance bit by bit until it reached Russia's borders, the new Europe that the United States and NATO wanted to create has essentially no arms control deals. I mean, these main pillars of global stability, like the New START Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, those are all ripped up in this new Europe that the US and NATO want. And this has also been a bloody affair. I mean, as the U.S. and NATO went about the creation of this new constellation of forces in Eastern Europe, they dismembered Yugoslavia and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people died. I mean, it's a complete issue of, you know, projection, a case of reality being turned on its head. Yeah. You know, the Ukraine war, and it's been such a terrible tragedy. I mean, the, the people in Ukraine and the people in Russia were historically, culturally connected. They were also part of the same entity, the Soviet Union, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. They lived in peace from 1922 when the USSR was formally created all the way up until 1991 when it was dissolved. The idea that people are killing each other, that's a terrible tragedy. But the question, as you're pointing out, Walter, is how did we get here? I mean, when the Soviet Union was collapsing, Secretary of State James Baker told Mikhail Gorbachev, NATO wouldn't go one foot to the east, and that that was the sort of the condition under which the Soviets would dissolve the Warsaw Pact military alliance, which was sort of the symmetrical mirror of NATO for the socialist bloc countries. And then relentlessly, the U.S. has kept moving further and further and further to the east. And I think everybody at this point kind of knows that. It wasn't because Russia was posing a threat. In fact, Russia was not only weakened and hobbled economically in a state of shock after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the looting of public property, you know, which went to the oligarchs and the billionaires and the people were plunged into poverty and the life expectancy in Russia declined by six years in six years, something unprecedented in peacetime. Not only was it weak, but Russia also asked to join NATO. And Walter, you know, if the United States had said yes to Russia joining NATO, that would have meant Russia was a, a military partner too. And I think, and you know, you and I have talked about this in the past, if Russia had been allowed into NATO, it wouldn't have been a danger to Europe. It would have really meant a very secure architecture for peace in Europe. But it would have also meant that absent a major, quote, adversary or enemy, the countries in Europe that had natural trading relations with a nearby neighbor, Russia, a big country with vast natural resources, including oil and gas, that's what would have happened. Really, what would have happened is that if Russia was treated as a friend, an ally, part of NATO, the countries of Europe could not have been coaxed or 
I don't know, maybe coaxed is too soft of a word, bludgeoned into maintaining their status as the junior partners of the United States. I mean, if people think about the war in Ukraine and think about it only as what's happened since Russia invaded in February 24th, 2022, you know, about one year ago, then they miss the geostrategic background. And if you don't look at the geostrategic background and look at it rationally and objectively, you can't really understand it. In fact, you become vulnerable to the corporate-owned, capitalist-owned, lying media, which functions as a propaganda arm for the war machine, to convince you that what U.S. policy is all about is something good, when in fact it's completely unnecessary and more dangerous than unnecessary, it is the path to a larger war. That's right. I mean, and one example, I mean, maybe the prime example of that phenomenon that you're talking about, the concerns of the U.S. government, of U.S. imperialism with regards to essentially the loyalty of its allies, its junior partners in Western Europe, is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. This is a major piece of energy infrastructure that would have delivered and was delivering huge amounts of natural gas to Germany primarily and also other parts of Western Europe. The United States was very concerned, very opposed to this, both because of its hostility towards Russia geopolitically, also because of the interests of U U.S. oil and gas corporations. There is an article in the New York Times, Brian, that I know you wanted to mention that is just so completely absurd, laughably outrageous. The New York Times has a new theory that they got from U.S. intelligence. Yeah, let's talk about that article. It's amazing. And then we have some audio. Actually, let's start with the video. We have two pieces. One is Joe Biden, president of the United States, talking right before the Russian military intervention into Ukraine. I think it's maybe it's February 7th. And then Victoria Nuland, who's in the State Department and who was as undersecretary or assistant secretary of state, one of the real coup makers in the 2014 coup that overthrew the Yanukovych government, the neutral government in Ukraine, creating a new right-wing pro-NATO government in Ukraine. I want to play this because right before Russia went into Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 and Nord Stream 1, the two pipelines, there's actually three pipelines that bring natural gas from Russia to Europe, in which the United States tried to stop these pipelines when the Soviets started building them. They didn't want Europe to be independent of the United States. They didn't want them to be too close to the Soviet Union. Then the Soviet Union collapsed. It was no longer a communist government. The evil communists were gone. But the U.S. still didn't want Europe to be close to Russia. And they really opposed the construction of Nord Stream 2, a second major pipeline. And there, Europe got low-cost energy from Russia. And the U.S. wanted Europe to get its energy from the United States, even though that would mean, in the case of natural gas, liquefying natural gas from shale fields in Texas, transporting them thousands of miles away, re-transforming the liquefied natural gas back into gas, and then being able to use it to heat stoves in France. I mean, it was like a very, very you know, long, complicated and environmentally destructive process. That's what the U.S. wanted. So before the Russians came into Ukraine on February 22nd, the U.S., and I think all of the people in our audience watching or listening will remember this, the U.S. kept saying the Russians are going to invade, the Russians are going to invade, they're negotiating demands 
about Ukraine are non-starters. And by the way, if they do invade, we're going to take out Nord Stream 2. Well, they didn't say we are going to. They just said it's going to be taken out. I want to talk about this because when you listen to Biden and then listen to Victoria Nuland later when she's testifying before Congress, not only are they celebrating the destruction of the pipeline because it was blown up, at least in five different places, mysteriously, but they're predicting that it would happen. And the way they're talking about it makes one believe absolutely that they were the culpable partner. Anyway, let's listen to how Biden frames this. This is before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Let me answer the first question first. If Germany, if uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again, then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream two. We we will bring an end to it. What do you, what, how will you how will you do that exactly since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. Walter, well, you see that? He's kind of smiling. I promise you we're going to be able to do it. You saw that, right? Right. And I mean, if you're Russia, I mean... Obviously, that's what you think that is. If you're Germany, if you're any of the other European governments, I mean, it's so completely clear. I mean, it's almost like they're bragging. I think that's really what they're doing. They're bragging about their power, the power of their intelligence agencies. Like whether you like it or not, we're going to decide where you get your oil and natural gas from. I mean, it's part of that imperial arrogance, I think. Yeah. Read a little bit, if you would, Walter, from some quotes from that article. I mean, they're really... It's shocking what the people of the United States who are being spoon-fed this corporate-owned media, what we're compelled to accept, even if we don't want to, just if we're ingesting or digesting, reading some of this media. Yeah, right. So this is an article that's titled, Intelligence Suggests Pro-Ukrainian Group Sabotaged Pipelines, U.S. Officials Say. So it goes on to say that, you know, okay, well, it's not a government, it's not a state-sponsored operation, but maybe, just maybe, a pro-Ukrainian, I don't know, militia, I guess it's implied, was responsible for this. So the article states, this is a direct quote from the article, U.S. officials declined to disclose the nature of the intelligence, how it was obtained, or any details of the strength of the evidence it contains. They have said that there are no firm conclusions about it, leaving open the possibility that the operation might have been conducted off the books by a proxy force with connections to the Ukrainian government or its security services. It admits that the pipelines were ripped apart by deep sea explosions in September in what U.S. officials described at the time as an act of sabotage. European officials have publicly said they believe the operation that targeted Nord Stream was probably state-sponsored, possibly because of the sophistication with which the perpetrators planted and detonated the explosives on the floor of the Baltic Sea without being detected. U.S. officials have not stated publicly that they believe the operation was sponsored by a state. The explosives were most likely planted with the help of experienced divers who did not appear to be working for military or intelligence services. U.S. officials who have reviewed the new intelligence said, but it is possible that the perpetrators received specialized government training in the past. What do you make of this, Brian? 
Wait, let's read that sentence, that last sentence again. So the U.S. government is saying these were not military forces connected to any government. We know that. And how do we know it? Because this unnamed intelligence source says that somehow they know that it's not connected to a government. We know that somehow. They don't tell us exactly how, but just believe us because it's this unnamed anonymous intelligence source. But because these are very sophisticated explosions deep below the water and divers had to do them, had to detonate them, maybe, just maybe, they're connected to some government where they got some advanced training. We don't know, but we know for sure it's not us. Right. It is possible that the perpetrators received specialized government training in the past. Now, if you or viewers have read Seymour Hersh's recent article about this, investigation into this, that article actually goes into very specific detail about just how complex this operation was, how much specialized training, highly, highly specialized equipment was needed and, according to the article, was used to carry out an operation of this magnitude, which, by the way, took place in one of the most heavily patrolled sea lanes on the planet. I mean, this is not a place where you can just sort of sneak in undetected and sneak out. One of the most heavily patrolled sea lanes on the planet because of all the geopolitical tensions going on. The article in the New York Times does acknowledge that Seymour Hersh's investigation exists, but only in passing, basically just one sentence. And they, they almost make fun of him while they're doing it. So the article reads, last month, the investigative journalist Seymour Hersh published an article on the newsletter platform Substack, concluding that the United States carry out the operation at the direction of Mr. Biden. In making his case, Mr. Hersh cited the president's pre-invasion threat to bring an end to Nord Stream 2 and similar statements by other senior U.S. officials. So the way they present it, it's like it's all just sort of inferred or guessed based on that clip that we just watched. That's nonsense. I mean, this is actually an investigative report that should be taken seriously, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. And people who are listening to this show or watching this show on Breakthrough News, Rania Kalik, one of the really amazing journalists with Breakthrough News, did an interview last week with Seymour Hirsch. I really want to encourage people to listen to that interview and go and get Seymour Hirsch's article. It's very detailed. You know, make up your own mind what you think. You know, after the explosions ripped apart Nord Stream 2, thus depriving Europe of any ability to access natural gas, which it had been reliant on all over Europe, all over Europe. At first, the U.S. media said, well, maybe Russia did it. You remember that, Walter? They said... Russia might have been sabotaging Europe for going along with the U.S. NATO campaign in Ukraine. Like, and Putin got on TV and said, like, this is our property. Why would we possibly destroy it? It took decades to build. Would we actually destroy our own pipeline? I mean, it was so obviously ridiculous, but it was treated as good coin in the mainstream media. Matter of fact, it got, that assertion got much more coverage than Seymour Hersh. Seymour Hersh, for people who don't know Seymour Hersh, in the late 1960s, a U.S. platoon went into a village in South Vietnam called My Lai. And the U.S. soldiers had been in firefights with national liberation fighters in the previous days and weeks, and they had taken quite a number of casualties. And the National Liberation Front was integrated as a movement for national liberation in the South Vietnamese countryside. They were trying to unify and liberate their country and evict the foreign occupiers. 
So U.S. soldiers said, well, you know, the NLF really seems like they're part of the people. And the people are peasants. And they live in these peasant villages. And since we're fighting them, and some of our soldiers, some of our brothers were killed or badly wounded, we're going to take revenge on this village, the village of Milai. And they went in in helicopters and they set every home on fire. And when people came out, they machine gunned them to death. And when they lined up the survivors, they put them in a ditch and they machine gunned them. They killed everyone. It was actually only the intervention of another U.S. soldier, a lieutenant, who came in and said he would start firing on U.S. troops unless they stopped the massacre. That's the only reason the massacre stopped. And more than 500 Vietnamese villagers that day were massacred. Men, women, children, babies, and their grandparents all slaughtered by the U.S. And Colin Powell, who was then with the U.S. military and got the report a month later about, or a few weeks later about the atrocity, covered it up and said it wasn't true, tried to conceal it. Seymour Hersh was the one or one of the main reporters who told the truth and revealed this war crime committed by the United States against the Vietnamese people. And Seymour Hersh from that time on was noted as a very credible investigative journalist because he broke the story. Now here we are, half a century later, He's saying with detail that this is a Pentagon operation designed to make it impossible for Europe to continue to access natural gas and other petroleum products from Russia. And the media didn't cover it at all. I mean, there was one sentence in this ludicrous article in the New York Times. The other times they're talking about Seymour Hersh as a controversial journalist or a discredited journalist. Like he's either a non-entity or somebody who can't be trusted. But that's who Seymour Hersh was, and that's how he became a famous investigative journalist. I mean, Seymour Hersh, you know, is getting at something, and I don't think we should let the story go. Victoria Newland, Walter, who I mentioned, who, you know, she was saying that famous call between Victoria Newland and the U.S. ambassador to Kiev, to Ukraine in 2014, right before the coup, the violent fascist-led coup in February 2014, overthrew the Yanukovych government, the neutral government. Victoria Newland's on this phone call, and she's telling the ambassador, look, Yatsenyuk is going to be the new prime minister. He's going to replace Yanukovych. We're going to name him. This is how the new government should look. And the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador says, well, the EU, you know, they wanted to go this way or that way. And she says, well, F the EU, F the EU. We're going to do this. And sure enough, the fascists, the right sector, pro-Nazi elements in the Maidan protest stage an armed uprising, overthrow the government in Kiev, which is what started all of this. And who's the new prime minister? Yatsenyuk. Yats, the guy who Victoria Nuland names in the conversation with the U.S. ambassador to Kiev a week or two before. So she's been there. She's a player. She's a major force and a major architect of U.S. policy. She wanted the coup. She wanted to bring Ukraine into NATO. That, you know, was on the verge of happening. Then she was a major player accelerating the conflict with Russia. She testified in Congress after the destruction of the pipeline of Nordstrom II and both the pipelines. I want to play this other videotape 
Walter, and let's listen to Victoria Nuland, because when you put this together with what Joe Biden was saying, what Joe Biden was saying, yeah, we're going to take out the pipeline, basically. We know how to do it. We can do it. Smirk, smirk. Let's listen to or watch this video clip from Victoria Nuland. I've introduced legislation to make Nord Stream 2 sanctions permanent. In your judgment, do you believe sanctions on Nord Stream 2 should be permanent or should the pipeline be allowed to be turned on? Senator, I think Nord Stream 2 is now dead. And as you have said, it is a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. I don't think it will ever be revived. So you don't think it will. So let me reiterate reiterate my question. Should the sanctions be permanent as a matter of law in your judgment? Uh, I don't think it it matters one way or the other. I think the pipeline will never come back. So you're testifying you have no objection. So, Walter, I mean, that's the Republicans and Democrats. You know, we have real variety in bourgeois politics in the United States. You have a very, very, very far right war maker and a very, 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 very far right war maker talking about Nord Stream 2. But the point is, she's basically saying, look, we it's gone. It's never coming back. And how could she be so sure it's never coming back? How could she be so sure? Because the U.S. has made a policy decision that Europe, independent countries in Europe, major capitalist powers in Europe, will not be allowed. The U.S. imperialist regime will not allow them to restore normal trade with Russia. Now, let's say the war in Ukraine ended tomorrow. Let's say there was a new government in Russia. Eventually, there will be, of course. The U.S. is saying Nord Stream 2 and access to Russian natural gas will never be available again to Europe. This is, again, all about fastening Europe and making Europe a dependency on the United States as the United States prepares for major power conflict with Russia and with China. That's right. And I think associated with this, you know, the United States must be concerned or at least should be concerned with how this is affecting public opinion in Europe with regards to the war. There were major demonstrations in several major cities across Europe of thousands, tens of thousands of people against the war, against the policy of constant escalation in Ukraine, of sending never-ending arms shipments. So I think that you know, the the brashness of the United States, you know, how they're going about this in the most arrogant, imperial way possible, and in a way that sucks up ever more resources in the midst of an economic crisis. I mean, that's starting to have an impact on public opinion in Europe. It may start having an impact on public opinion, or well, in fact, it is starting to have an impact on public opinion in the United States as well. But I think that that speaks to why essentially to why the U.S. intelligence agencies are trying out a new excuse for the Nord Stream pipeline, right? I mean, they began by saying, oh, Russia did it. But that makes absolutely no sense. Like you pointed out, Brian, it's their property. The pipeline is their property. Also, the gas is their property, too. I mean, if Russia didn't want gas to get to Europe, they would just stop pumping gas to Europe. They wouldn't have to do a you know secret operation in the middle of the Baltic Sea. So that's ridiculous. So now they're going to try something else out, which is pretty ridiculous, but maybe not quite so stupidly ridiculous. Well, it was just some pro-Ukrainian militia rogue actor that we we just don't have control over. You know, we don't know everything that's going on. Maybe they received government assistance at some point, but look, guys, it wasn't us. It wasn't like the CIA. Yeah. Well, Walter, we're looking at demonstrations there on the screen. Those are demonstrations in Europe. There's going to be a major protest in Washington on March Saturday, March 18th. There will be 
other demonstrations in San Francisco and LA on the same day, the 20th anniversary of the US invasion of Iraq. I mean, when you think about it, 20 years later, the US is crying crocodile tears for Ukrainians on the basis that Russia invaded a sovereign country. Well, the US invaded Iraq. The US invaded Iraq 20 years ago, and they did it as shock and awe. You remember those images of the first night of the war, the bombing that, I mean, it wasn't like a limited war somewhere else. They were bombing downtown Baghdad. They were bombing the water system, the sewage system. They were bombing the electrical grid. They were making life impossible for the Iraqi people. And here we are 20 years later, Bush and Cheney who ordered the attack based on lies, based on the lies presented by the US media, they're running around making speeches, writing books, making lots of money, being treated as if they're like real statesmen. And you know, at the time right before the war, I was I went to Iraq actually with Ramsey Clark and some other people right before the war, and I had been going to Iraq numerous times since the, the middle of the 1980s. Even before the war, the US was bombing Iraq every day. Every day, I was going all over the country. There were bombings constantly. We were going and sitting with the loved ones of family members who had been killed in U.S. bombings or terribly wounded or maimed. We were in Mosul. We were in Basra. We were in Baghdad. I mean, it was amazing. It was just nonstop aggression. Where are the crocodile tears or any tears for the Iraqi people or for the U.S. soldiers and their families who were sent to this war based on lies? You know, the Lancet Medical Journal in 2010 said they thought even then a million Iraqis died who would not have died otherwise because of the war. Not all died because they were shot or, you know, bombs hit them, but they didn't have access to drinkable water. They didn't have access to medicine. I mean, all of the attendant causes of human suffering from a war, we kind of know about that. And here you have Walter, and you know, by the way, Andrew Card, who was George W. Bush's chief of staff, in early September 2002, nine months before the invasion, he announced that basically that the U.S. was preparing for war in Iraq. And they said, why are you announcing it now? And he said, well, you never, you never market a new product in August. You wait until after Labor Day. That's how they were treating it. And I have to tell you, I was in meetings in Washington, D.C. I was the leader or one of the leaders of the Answer Coalition. We were organizing major protests against the coming war. I was in meetings at, in the Capitol building. Barbara Lee was there, Congresswoman Lee, Dennis Kucinich and others. And these Congress people, progressive, liberal Congress people were coming in and saying public opinion was running. The calls that all Congress people, all senators and House of Representatives members were getting from their constituents about going to like another Vietnam, but this time in the Middle East, the calls were 300 to one against. And they were like, this is like, Bush will never get away with this. Bush will never get away with this because the American people so oppose this thing. And also the people of the United States did not believe that they were being menaced or threatened by Iraq. Iraq was hobbled by 13 years of sanctions. It was surrounded militarily. They had 13,000 weapons inspections over a 12-year period. It didn't have any weapons. And it was still disarming itself right up until the day of the invasion. Actually, there are images. You can go back and look at old TV images. 
the Iraqis are trying to prove, look, we're disarming, we're disarming, we're disarming. And then Bush starts bombing Baghdad, shock and awe. The thing that the U.S. government used to try to turn public opinion were the reporters who provided false information about the Iraq war. They were the ones who lied about the coming war with Iraq. And we can see some of the images. This was what Baghdad looked like on the first night, shock and awe, borrowing a phrase from the slave owners who wanted to create shock and awe against enslaved people in the, in the event that they were thought about running away or rising up. Shock and awe. But you had reporters, Walter, like Michael Gordon and Judy Miller, Judith Miller, who are writing articles in the New York Times, and the New York Times was publishing these articles, and the American people believed them because they were coming from the New York Times, the paper of record, that Iraq was really a great menace and a great danger. And Michael Gordon is back. He's got a major article. We're recording today, Wednesday, March 8th, International Women's Day. He's got an article on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. You and I were talking about it. I don't have it right in front of me, but you do, Walter. Let's just read the headline from Michael Gordon, the guy who had the false propaganda about the Iraq war. And if you have some of the background about what Gordon actually wrote, let's share it with our listeners and our and our viewers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a person who's complicit, completely complicit with one of the worst crimes of history. I mean, the invasion of Iraq, the completely unprovoked invasion of Iraq that led to over one million deaths. Over one million people died because of these lies. And this guy was a central figure in that. I want to read just a couple paragraphs from a piece that appeared in a periodical called Lies of Our Time. When George W. Bush and Tony Blair made their fraudulent case to attack Iraq, the Times, along with most corporate media outlets in the United States, became cheerleaders for the war, unchallenged government propaganda. Unlike Blair's deceptions, Miller's lies provided the pretext for war. Her lies cost lives. The White House propaganda blitz was launched on September 7, 2002 at a Camp David press conference. British Prime Minister Tony Blair stood side by side with his co-conspirator, President George W. Bush. Together, they declared that evidence from a report published by the UN International Atomic Energy Agency showed that Iraq was six months away from building nuclear weapons. I don't know what more evidence we need, crowed Bush. Actually, any evidence would help. There was no such IAEA report, but at the time, few mainstream American journalists questioned the leader's outright lies. And said the following day, quote unquote, evidence popped up in the Sunday New York Times under the twin byline of Michael Gordon and Judith Miller. Quote, more than a decade after Saddam Hussein agreed to give up weapons of mass destruction, they stated with authority, Iraq has stepped up its quest for nuclear weapons and has embarked on a worldwide hunt for materials to make an atomic bomb, Bush administration officials said today. In a revealing example of how the story amplified administration spin, the authors included the phrase soon to be repeated by President Bush and all his top officials. The first sign of a smoking gun, they argue, may be a mushroom cloud. This is the origin of the lies that got us into war. It's both the mainstream media and the politicians and the generals all working together. They all collude to bring us endless war. Yeah. And today's headline, Walter, I think from Michael Gordon, 
is again now this guy is a liar right what you're saying he lied he was actually promoting the lies of the pentagon of the bush administration of rumsfeld of cheney in the new york times and instead of him being taken down and saying like you can't really be trusted ever again as a reporter he's writing front page articles in the wall street journal today and what's the main it's a beginning of a series it's a beginning of a wall street journal i guess michael gordon series walter i don't have it in front of me what's the headline yeah that's right brian it's titled the u.s is not yet ready for the era of great power conflict and it starts out with essentially with this fantasy scenario where he's interviewing or quoting an air force officer so it goes a classified Pentagon war game simulated a Chinese push to take control of the South China Sea. The Air Force officer charged with plotting the service's future learned that China's well-stocked missile force had rained down on the bases and ports the U.S. relied on in the region, turning American combat, aircraft, and munitions into smoldering ruins in a matter of days. My response was, holy crap, we're going to lose if we fight like this, he recalled. The officer, now a lieutenant general, began posting yellow sticky notes on the walls of his closet-sized office at the Pentagon, listing the problems to solve if the military was to have a chance of blunting a potential attack from China. I did not have an idea how to resolve them, said Lieutenant General Hainote. I was struck how quickly China had advanced and how our long-held doctrines about warfare were becoming obsolete. And it just goes on and on like this about essentially how a war with China would go, how it would actually play out a conflict that would potentially end life on Earth, end human life on Earth, because these are two major nuclear armed powers. And yet here's the New York Times writing almost wistfully about this prospect or almost with a sense of inevitability, making the argument like, hey, when this happens, the U.S. better be in a position to win. Yeah, he says in the article, this article is the first in a series examining the challenges faced by America's military as it enters a new international era. It's the era they proclaimed when they said that they're preparing for major power conflict as the top priority. He then goes on, the U.S. military is still more capable than its main adversaries. The Chinese have their own obstacles in developing the capability to carry out a large-scale amphibious assault while the weaknesses of Russia's military have been exposed in Ukraine. But a defense of Taiwan would require U.S. forces, which are also tasked with deterring conflict in Europe and the Middle East, to operate over enormous distances and within range of China's firepower. The threat is mounting, Michael Gordon tells us. Beijing has, in recent years, shifted the security terrain in its favor in the areas around China around China, not Mexico, not Canada, not around Long Island, around China. In the South China Sea, it has built artificial islands and fortified them with military installations to assert control over the strategic waterway and deny the US Navy freedom to roam. They're talking about the South China Sea. They're doing things, Walter, according to Michael Gordon, that are very aggressive because they're trying to sort of assert control over the South China Sea. Again, it's not over the Gulf of Mexico. 
It's not over, you know, the East Coast of the United States. We're talking about China. And what's obvious is in this article, again, front page, the U.S. is not ready yet for major power conflict. One, it assumes, it wants the audience to assume, this is the most important piece, that major power conflict is now inevitable. And two, the U.S. has to step it up. It has to increase military spending. It has to recruit more troops. It has to introduce new technologies. What, to build bridges in the United States, to repair highways, to build new schools, to make more medical facilities available? No, all for major power conflict. And there's sort of normalizing major power conflict, telling us it's inevitable, and the only thing we can do now is to prepare to win. And major power conflict is going to be where? It's gonna be in the East China Sea or the South China Sea, as if the US has the right to bring, as it is bringing 60% of its air power and naval power all around Taiwan, all around China, in preparation for major power conflict. The reason I wanted to do this show, Walter, and I think it's so important that we are doing this show, is that we have to listen to the voices in the media and not trust them. We have to hear the voices in the mainstream media and not trust them. To understand the the US capitalist corporate-owned media is not journalism, that this is in fact a propaganda arm for the Pentagon and for the ruling class establishments in both political parties, and they have decided that we're moving towards major power conflict. Right now, we are moving towards major power conflict, not because Russia wants it, not because Russia is taking over Eastern and Central Europe, not because China is menacing the United States, but the United States believes, the US policymakers believe, and this is their consensus position, which is why it's reflected without criticism in the corporate owned media, they have decided that the only way they can retain complete US hegemony dominance is by exercising primacy over Russia and China, threatening them, creating pressure cookers inside their own ruling parties, and hoping that those parties split apart under the pressure as the Soviet Union did break apart in the late 1980s. And so the US is telling China basically, we're getting ready for war with you. It's gonna happen not near us, it's gonna happen near you. It's gonna happen in the East and, and South China Sea. You can't stop it. We're gonna move forward. And they're hoping that the American people stay on the sidelines. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this show 20 years after the Iraq war is to say, look, we have to expose the capitalist owned media. It's not simply an interesting device to share information. It's certainly not journalism. It is indeed a propaganda arm of the war machine. And as we move forward, as we move towards the 20th anniversary, as many of us get ready to be in the streets in Washington, D.C. on Saturday, March 18th. And by the way, we now know that Noam Chomsky will be one of our featured speakers at the demonstration. As we move forward and prepare this new anti-war movement, we have to understand the gravity of this. When you have these propagandists like Michael Gordon coming back and telling people, get ready for the next war, but it's not a war with Iraq, it's a war with China and Russia, nuclear powers. We have to understand indeed the gravity of the situation. We're gonna keep following this story. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We were joined today by Walter Smolarek, our colleague. Walter, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me today. 
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.